As you might have, might have seen in your bulletin, the sermon this morning is coming from the, the general uh, idea is coming from Matthew 19, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 24, 25, and 26. And let me read this uh, to you. It may be on the screen as well. Listen to the infallible Word of God. This is Jesus speaking. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The words with which our Lord describes the rich young ruler are hard for us to listen. They're hard for us to hear. And they were very hard for the disciples to hear them as well. That's the reason they say, Lord, who then can be saved? Jesus has just finished telling this man who thought had kept all the commandments he tells, and tells Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he tells Jesus, I kept all the commandments from my youth. We'll see about that. And Jesus tells him, well, how about check your heart first? How about, I'm going to give you a test. Do you really think you have kept all the commandments from your youth? How about the first commandment? You will not have any other gods before me. And when Jesus tells this to the man, he goes away sad because he had riches. In other words, his God was not the true God, but his God was money. The disciples then asked the question that I would have asked if I were there. Then who can be saved? There is a man here that's saying he kept all the commandments from his youth. If this guy can't be saved, then who can? And this is why Jesus says, if it, is, if it were up to man, if it were up to man to craft any way by which they would find favor before this holy God, it would be impossible. But since it is up to God, it is possible. There have always been people who want to hear sermons that are practical. Then when they go home, they feel good about themselves. They want to hear positive messages that tickle the ears. In contemporary evangelicalism, you can find sermons on various topics, and I just found these three. On Sunday mornings, this is what's being preached in some pulpits. Ten steps to improve your marriage. Five steps to raise polite children. Seven steps on how to be a better person. Sunday morning is not to preach, it's not about preaching on how to raise your children. On Sunday morning, the gospel must be preached to the believers and to the unbelievers. People don't want to hear sermons about doctrine or theology anymore. They think that doctrine is dry and doctrine is boring. 
but I want to tell you that the most, if you want to hear a practical sermon, a sermon about theology, a sermon about doctrine is the most practical sermon you'll ever hear. Theology is practical because right theology leads to right worship. If you have the wrong theology, like the Mormons do, you're going to end up worshiping a wrong God. Therefore, right doctrine leads to right worship. It shapes the way we live our lives. As you might have seen on your bulletin, the purpose for my sermon this morning is that you would have a higher view of the sovereignty of God and salvation. And if you already do have a high view, that you will be further encouraged this morning. Point number one. Point number one. The new birth is solely of God. The new birth is solely of God. Regeneration is an act of God's free grace. This is the, the description, the definition of the new birth. The new birth is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are made alive by the power of the Spirit of God, and we are enabled to place our faith in Jesus Christ and embrace the gospel. The new birth is not a cooperation between you and God. It's not a team working up to saving faith. The new birth is solely and entirely the work of of God. Let me read to you this passage from Ezekiel chapter 37, the first six verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, the bones were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones. Behold, this is what God will do to the dead bones. Listen. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come on you, and I will cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is such a powerful passage. And it describes perfectly the main idea for my sermon this morning. And it is that in salvation, before salvation, you're utterly, completely dead, just like these bones were in the valley. In that the Lord must come upon you and give you breath and life and put flesh upon these bones. Before the, before the Lord gives you life to your stony hearts, we are just like these bones described in Ezekiel. Dry bones with no flesh, no life, no hope for the future. These bones are just lying there dead, completely unable to do what is pleasing to God. Listen how the Bible describes the person before the new birth. And you tell me if this is a pretty picture 
Romans 8 says, because the mindset of the flesh, that is the unbeliever, is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Ephesians 2, which our brother Joel read. Thank you for doing that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were by nature, were you by nature children of God? You were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is not a joke. The Bible doesn't paint the picture of man softly. It is a hard picture. That, that is why I asked Brother Joel to read this passage. Because you must be broken before you can be built up and realize where Christ took you from and where you are today. I was teaching a class once, and I asked uh, the people who were in that class, we were studying these passages, and I asked, what can a dead man do? There were certain answers. And finally, a brilliant young man said, Actually, dead men can stink. And I thought, well, kudos to you. That's a good answer. Probably the best answer I'll ever hear. 1 Corinthians 2.14 keeps reinforcing this theme. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The doctrine of regeneration and the new birth, as taught by the New Testament, is that it is 100% of God with zero cooperation from the part of men. And how could anyone cooperate with God if the person before saved in faith has been described as we just read in Romans and in Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians? How can a dead person cooperate with God? It's foolishness. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My son and I went for a walk this morning just to kind of clear our minds, and he, I actually went for a walk. He was in the stroller. And I asked him this morning, how much did you cooperate when you were born to this world? You know, how much did you cooperate in your natural birth? You know what? He didn't say anything. Um, he didn't have an answer for it. But I want to ask you this morning, how much did you cooperate in your natural birth? Did your parents come and ask you 
Do you want to be born 2023 or 1957? Did they ask you, do you want to be born from us or do you want to be born of these parents? These parents will love you, but we have a lot of money. You can choose. Just as you were passive in your natural birth, in the same way you, are, you were just as passive in your spiritual birth. Before the Holy Spirit of God came upon you and gave you life and birthed you into the kingdom, you were completely unable to do what was pleasing to God. Why? Because you were dead. And as that brilliant young man said, dead man, dead man can only stink. Dead men cannot help, they cannot cooperate. And this is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Otherwise, you can't even see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God might be right in front of your eyes. He might be staring you in your face. But if Jesus Christ doesn't come and takes the veil from your face, it makes you see. You will never see the kingdom of God. These are the words from Jesus. I'm not making this up. No one has ever just believed apart from the definite and intentional work of the Spirit in that person. This is how Luther's small catechism puts it. I believe I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him. But the Holy Spirit has called me, Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified me, and kept me true in the faith. If you're here this morning, if you're watching, if you are here and you believe that you're able to cooperate with God to bring about saving faith to your soul, I want to ask you this. How can you draw water from a well that's dry? And how can you draw honey from a pile that's full of dung? To continue on the dung theme we have been having on Discovery. And how can you draw fresh water from the ocean? There is nothing to draw from. This is why the new birth is solely of God, so that all the glory may be given to Him. Not to you, not because you helped God, not because you cooperated with God, but to God alone be the glory. Listen to the words of this hymn. Lord, it is not that I did choose you, that I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. Point number two, justification is entirely of God. The Shorter Catechism, and we actually had the youth group memorize this, and we gave them a gift card if they would memorize this question. That is how critical this topic is. This is how it's defined. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The reformer said that just this article of justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. 
you get justification wrong, you don't have a church. You get justification by faith alone, you have no gospel. This is the main topic of the Holy Scriptures. Justification is described in the New Testament as a forensic, legal declaration upon the soul of the person. Not a moral change in the person, that would be sanctification. Justification never grows. It doesn't evolve, it doesn't increase in the life of the Christian. The moment you're justified, you're as justified as you'll ever be. Because it is a legal declaration in a court of law, wherein He forgives you all your sins and declares you righteous in His sight. He declares you righteous in His sight, and is that based upon your performance? It is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Philippians 3, 9, we studied this recently with Pastor Paul. says, being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. This is what has been called an alien righteousness, not the UFO alien righteousness, but an alien righteousness. That is to say that a righteousness that doesn't belong to me was given to me. This righteousness is extra nos, outside of us. It says, which is not having a righteousness which is from the law, that is not based on performance or certain action, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God upon faith. I want, to, I want you to imagine being in a court of law in which the judge of all the earth is sitting at the judgment seat and you are being examined and God is going through your spiritual life through all your life and everything you ever did. And God has declared you to be spiritually bankrupt. He has found you to be wanting. The debt that you owe to this judge is astronomical. You could never pay it. It is too great to pay. The average debt in the U.S. is about 100000 per household. But the debt that you owe God if you haven't put your faith in Christ is totally unpayable. But God, in this court of law, by His mercy and grace, has legally declared you to be righteous and free from the debt because somebody else paid that debt and somebody else gave you that righteousness. Not a word so that no one may boast. Does this picture of the court of law and justification by faith alone give you a reason to be grateful at all? Let me read it to you in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.4. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when you owed so much, he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? That was just to wake you up a little bit. Martin Luther was a, was a monk in the 16th century. Uh, Luther became a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. And the more he studied God's Word and the more he taught it to his students, the more he dove deep into Romans and Galatians and the book of Psalms, he realized that the standard that God required for anyone to enter heaven was perfection. Absolute perfection. And he realized he couldn't accomplish it on his own. He was struck by verses like James 2.10. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. I want you to humor me for just a moment. You're going a long life just keeping God's law as anybody does. Okay? You don't, you don't, you never have, nobody has. But just humor me for one second. You're going along with your life thinking that you have kept all, the God, all God's commandments, just like the rich young ruler thought. And one day you're lazy. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe you had a rough night with your kids. Maybe you're hangry. And you slip up for just one second and break one law According to name, according to James, you are ruined. You have broken the whole law just by one little commandment you broke. And if you're here today and you are, if you are without Christ, you have broken one commandment, you're guilty of all of it. And there is no hope for you unless you repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Luther, the more he studied the Bible, the more he realized that perfection is necessary. And since God demands perfection, and no one can accomplish perfection, no one can be perfect, that is why God provided someone who is perfect. And if you trust in Him today, He will wipe your slate clean. And He will declare you to be righteous in His sight for free. No strings attached. This is not a marketing scheme where I'm trying to get you to buy one, get the other half off. It is absolutely a free gift from God. To receive the righteousness of God which He gives freely, God doesn't demand anything from you. And if that doesn't give me an amen, I don't know what will. To give you the righteousness of Christ to you, he doesn't demand anything but to simply trust and believe and embrace the gospel of the Lord. I was having a conversation with somebody about whether people were good or evil by nature, and it was a good conversation, and we enjoyed it. 
And, and he finally came uh, to this turning point. And he, the person finally said, well, you know, I, I don't think I'm that bad. I, you know, well, I hope that God will see the good things that I've done in life and I hope that he will let me into heaven. Have you ever heard that? Have you had a conversation with somebody and that's what they say? I finally told him this. What I'm, what I'm about to tell you is going to be the most important thing I ever tell you, so please listen. And I said, God demands perfection, not your best attempts in life. God demands perfection, perpetual, perfect obedience to the law of God. If he's going to let anyone in, he has to be perfect. I tried to be a good perfect, a good person is not going to cut it. I tried to be nice, it's not going to be enough. I didn't murder anyone, it's not going to be enough. Because I can guarantee you, if at least hated somebody for at least one minute of your life, for one minute, and according to the words of Jesus, you have committed murder in your heart. Therefore, nothing you can ever do will ever be good enough. None of your actions, none of your attempts will ever be good enough to meet the highest standards that God requires so that you may escape His wrath. That is why justification has to happen outside of you. And this justification has to happen for you on your behalf. You need a substitute before the judge. And only one man was perfect. Jesus Christ our Lord. When you ask a Roman Catholic, a Mormon, or a Jehovah's Witness, even a Muslim, or pretty much anybody else. Um, you ask them, are you saved? Nine times out of ten they will say, I hope so. I hope so. Why is it the false religions and cults that go away from biblical teaching can never give you assurance of salvation? It's because of this. They add things that you must do on top of the gospel. And when you add things that must be done on top of the gospel, you destroy the gospel. When you add things to Christ, when it's Christ plus, plus something, Christ has been destroyed. When you add something to the gospel, the gospel and then give to the poor, you just destroy the gospel. The law tells you do this, and the gospel tells you, it's done. The law of God is good, and I hope we love, we love the law of God. Because the law of God is meant to show us our sins and our misery, and how utterly incapable you are to meet God's standards. Once you realize there's nothing you can do when you read the law of God, it is meant to point you to, towards Jesus Christ and to catapult you towards Jesus Christ. You see that false religion, false doctrine of justification will have you do everything under the sun until the cows come home. 
so that you may have assurance. But it can never deliver. False justification will never deliver assurance. Yet the clear teaching from the scriptures is that you can have peace. You can know. Because Romans 5.1 says, We have been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God. Yes, you can have peace with God. Charles Finney, I don't know if you've heard his name or not, he was a very influential pastor and theologian in the United States in the 19th century. And he was one of the leaders that led to the Second Great Awakening in the U.S. In fact, there were some theological, uh, some seminaries that require you to read his uh, systematic theology. He was very influential in the Vineyard Movement, the church growth movement and televangelism and promise keepers movements. Very influential just to evangelicalism in general in the United States. You can still find his systematic theology, by the way. You can still go and buy it. Finney was asked the following. And if, if, if you're half asleep, maybe wake up now so you're not scared uh, mid-sentence or buckle up. Finney was asked, does a Christian cease to be a Christian whenever he sins? Ready? Whenever a Christian sins, he must, for the time being, cease to be one. Whenever the Christian sins, he must be condemned. He must bear the penalty of the law of God. The Christian is justified no longer than he obeys and must be condemned when he disobeys. Dear Christian, if those are the good news, please don't tell me the bad ones. Finney believed that God demanded perfection, but instead of that leading him to Christ, he said this, quote, full obedience is a condition for justification. Imagine, not just half obedience, not just a little obedience. Full obedience is a condition for justification. So first you must be completely obedient to the law of God, then He will justify you. That is not the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. That is not justification by faith alone. And if you ever hear that in a pulpit, or in television, or in YouTube, or read a book, you run away as far as you possibly can. Oh, it gets better. Can a man be justified while sin remains in him? Certainly not, Finney said. Can the Christian be pardoned and accepted and justified in the gospel sense while sin in any degree remains in him? He said, certainly not. Go read Romans 7, and you tell me if the life of the Christian is meant to be a life of perfection in this life, or if it's meant to be a life of battle against sin until we make it to it. I'm going to read you these verses, and I want you to tell me who is the actor and who is, who is being acted upon. First Corinthians 6.11 and such were some of you. But you were washed. 
washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified apart from works of the law. See these verses? You are being justified by God. is being done outside of you. And yet Finney and some of evangelicalism will have you believed that you have to somehow help even in justification. Titus 3.7 so that being justified by your works, no, being justified by His grace, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who is the one at work? Is it you plus God? Justification is solely the work of the Lord. And justification is a free gift, and it must be done for you. And it's not based in any merit in you whatsoever. For what could the Lord Jesus could have seen in you that he would love you? Are you really that lovable? Point number three. Sanctification is the work of God. I won't spend, spend much time in this one, sanctification, because Pastor Paul has already been teaching on the subject and we have been studying in the book of uh, Philippians. But I do want to spend the time that I do have left in drawing a distinction between justification and sanctification. Because this is where people usually go wrong. And if you go wrong here, you will lack peace and you will be utterly confused. You won't be able to read the Bible straight. I was having a conversation with a different person. I like to have these conversations. Uh, I find them helpful. I get to know them better and their, and their background a little bit better. And I get, then I get to use them as a story um, later on. I don't tell them that. Don't tell them I said that. I was having a conversation with a different person about being saved by faith alone. And this person said, are you telling me all I have to do is believe, and then I can go do whatever I want. And this is the response from the Jehovah's Witnesses and the, and the Mormons and, and the Roman Catholics. And even some ignorant Protestants would say this. The Apostle Paul, after he has thoroughly explained justification by faith alone in the book of Romans, he's expecting this question, this objection. And he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Those who don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone and have a proper distinction between sanctification and justification Think that we're telling people, believe and go do whatever you want. This is what we're saying, though. Now that the Spirit has given you new life, He has given life to these dead bones and give you a, a fleshly heart instead of the stony heart, you will want to do what is pleasing to God naturally. 
Not so that you may gain something, but because you gained something by the work of Christ. You will want to please the Lord who loved you and gave himself up for you. You do not want to displease the Lord if you are saved. You will want to desire to serve your neighbor. But these actions do not determine your eternal spiritual state. This is the definition of sanctification. Now listen how it differs from justification. Sanctification is the work of, work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Notice one thing. Justification is an act of God's free grace, whereas sanctification is the work of God's free grace. In other words, sanctification, it's a process that lasts the whole life of the Christian until that person sees the Lord face to face. In sanctification, the Christian, be, uh, Christian battles with sin throughout his life, and it is never perfect in this life. The distinction between these two is so important because there are prominent pastors out there that are utterly confused as to how these work. And if they're confused, they might confuse the flock. And if you are confused, well, everybody's confused at that point. What some people do is that they end up making sanctification the grounds for justification. And that's what Finney was teaching. teaching. And just to be clear, sanctification adds nothing to your final salvation. It is not as if justification is an act of God's free grace, and now sanctification is up to me, and I have to put the big boy pants on and get to work if I'm really going to make it to heaven. Holiness is still the work of God in your life. Otherwise, you would have something to boast about when you get to heaven. All of the scope of salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. Unless, so that you may not boast. Now listen to what Ephesians 2.10 says about sanctification. We are, his, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. But even these works, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The psalmist puts it this way. Psalm 130, verse 4. He says, With you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. See that because, because you have been justified, because there is forgiveness, because you have been saved, now you can go out there and fix your neighbor's roof, help him with his car, not to get something out of God, not to be forgiven, but because you are forgiven, you are now free to serve your neighbor out of simple gratitude. And that frees the Christian. Psalm 119, verse 32. I run in the path of your commandments, for you have broadened my understanding. Again, the same pattern. 
Because he opened our eyes and we understand, because he forgave us all our sins, now we can love God and love neighbor out of gratitude. See, that good works must flow from a heart that's full of gratitude, from a heart that's not full of fear that God will punish us. But good works flow out of a heart that's full of gratitude because he loved us. Just to be clear, there are good works we have to do. There are good works we are called to do. We are called to love our neighbor and help them when they are in need. We are called to be patient. But these good works are not generated by you. Ephesians 2.10 said that these good works God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that we are called to work out what he's already worked in. Let me give you an illustration about what sanctification is all about. And I will close because the babies are getting tired too. I want you to imagine a garden in which the seed of the gospel has been planted. And the fruit of the Spirit has, been, has started to produce flowers and plants and trees. Fruit trees are popping up. You have strawberries. You have rhubarb. Although I don't like rhubarb. It's just too tart. But, and then you have apples. And then you have peaches that are popping up. These are the fruit of the gospel that God planted in this seed and in this field. But along with the plants that are growing out of the gospel, there is weeds, there is pests, and there is animals that are trying to eat all the fruit of the Spirit. They're trying to hinder the growth of these plants. The gardener must come and fertilize the ground, water the ground, and trim the plants and protect them from the wild animals so that they may grow and flourish. However, in this life, there will always be weeds, there will always be pests, and there will, there will always be animals that try to destroy the fruit of the Spirit because the battle with sin continues until we're in glory. A well-tended garden will bring glory to God, who is the gardener. As others see the beauty of Christ in the garden. If you don't remember anything else from the distinction between justification and sanctification this morning, I do want you to remember this. It is the tree that makes the fruit and not the fruit that makes the tree. Let me say that again. It is not the fruit that makes the tree, but the tree that makes the fruit. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher since the days of Lord Jesus said, Satan would love if you would look at yourself and not to Christ for your salvation. The devil says, look at your performance for your assurance and not to the cross. 
the devil loves when we take our eyes away from the Lord Jesus and we put him in ourselves. And we start trusting our performance and our good works instead of the work that Christ did. We say to the, to the unbeliever every Lord's Day, Jesus says, Come, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and now we'll give you rest. And this is true for you today. And if you haven't embraced the gospel, you must come today. Yet we forget to point out sometimes that this invitation is for Christians too. Jesus died for the, Christ, for, the, for the sins of Christians too. And if you're a Christian here today and if you have sinned, guess what? Christ died for those sins as well. Philippians 1.6 says, uh, says this. And this summarizes everything because salvation is of the Lord. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that even sanctification is the work of God. Some Christians are afraid of the day of judgment. And I have been afraid of the day of judgment myself, to be honest. I'm always afraid of what if I haven't done enough? What if I haven't loved enough? What if I haven't given enough? What if I am not good enough? I want to tell you this morning, if you have placed your trust in Christ Jesus, you, have, you can have peace with God. Because He already gave the declaration in that court of law. He has already passed judgment upon your soul. He has, he has declared you to be as righteous as His Son. So let us praise the Lord because salvation belongs to Him. So that all the praise and all the glory and all thanksgiving may be given unto Him and none to man. As Jesus said, and I'm going to finish with the words that he began with. With men, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Not to us, O Lord, but to you be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, who has loved us so greatly, you have looked upon us, and if we have trusted in your Son, you have declared us as righteous as your Son, Jesus. And all out of grace and mercy, there are no words that I can say to thank you that the work of salvation has been and will be completely your work. I pray that you would work in the hearts of 
the saints and the hearts of the sinners this morning, that they may look upon the gospel and the justification by faith alone, and regeneration and sanctification, and give you all the glory because you're so gracious towards us. Jesus Christ, we love you because you first loved us. In your name we pray, Jesus.